Thank you for tuning into this episode of Revolution and Ideology. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. In this episode, we are going to be talking about fascism, and we're going to go through the characteristics of fascism as written by Umberto Eco, which is a famous list of uh, what fascism looks like and kind of its characteristics, like I said. So, uh, yeah, we're just going to dive in. Any thoughts before we go? No, I'm excited to, I mean, this will be like kind of an introduction to Echo for me. I've always used different sources on this, a guy named Lawrence Britt, which we've heard has kind of been debunked a little bit. So this newer, more, I guess, like accepted academic approach is Mm -hmm. super exciting for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be just a conversation. We're literally just going to read through his list and just have a conversation about it. So not a lot of research behind this or really any like deep historical examples or anything. We just want to have a conversation about what he has to say. Uh, just a super brief background on Echo himself. He's Italian and he grew up, uh, he was born in 1931, 1932. So he grew up fully experiencing the brunt of fascism in Italy. So if anyone's an expert on this, it's definitely him. Uh, he's a philosopher, an Italian academic. I think his appointment was at the University of Bologna, uh, which is actually an awesome school if you've ever seen it. Um, anyways, so he writes, you've ever been there. Yeah, I, mean, so yeah. I have. It's awesome. Uh, he writes an article for the New York Review of Books in on June twenty second, nineteen fifty five is when nineteen ninety five. Sorry, nineteen ninety five is when it gets published. If you want to look it up, we'll also link to it in the show notes. Um, where he goes through, he actually gives a little bit of his background uh, living under fascism and a lot of discussion that he has about uh, World War II and so on, and the movements in Italy, and talks about uh, Nazism in Germany and so on. And then he finally arrives uh, toward the end of this article on a list of uh, characteristics of fascism. And interestingly, he specifically points out how to be considered fascist, a regime doesn't have to have every single one of these characteristics. We use another book. We we, t- we have a unit on fascism in our ideology course that we teach together. And we un- use another book that's an Oxford reader on fascism. We use the introduction to that, uh, which is really, really good. And they talk about, they use the term the fascist minimum, which is like the minimum sort of characteristics that a regime can have before it's considered fascism. Echo says that it's enough for one of these characteristics to be present. Uh, In fact, I'll just read his quote. He says, "Um, these features cannot be organized into a system. Many of them contradict each other and are also typical of other kinds of despotism or fanaticism, but it is enough that one of them be present to allow fascism to coagulate around it. So it's not as if if a regime has one or two or five of these that it's fascist or even all of them that it's fascist, but it's enough for that one of these can be present and fascism can form uh, around these uh, characteristics. All right. So you ready to start the list? Let's do it. Here we go. The first one. The first feature, uh, he, he uses the term you are fascism as sort of like the the you are stands for like generic sort of fascism. The first feature of you are fascism is the cult of tradition. Traditionalism is, of course, much older than fascism. Not only was it typical of counter-revolutionary Catholic thought after the French Revolution, but it was born in the late Hellenistic era as a reaction to classical Greek rationalism. Uh, And he goes on. That's a whole paragraph that he has for the first one. But the first feature of UR fascism is the cult of tradition. What do you got on that? I found a different source here that has a cool little quote that's attached to that. And and I want to actually read that little quote. Okay. One has only to look at the syllabus of every fascist movement to find the major traditionalist thinkers. The Nazi uh, Nost was uh, uh, Nosts were uh, uh, nourished by traditionalist 
uh, syncretic, syncre- oh God, I can't even say the word. This is going to be one episode, whatever, of traditionalist occult elements. So essentially, um, yeah, I mean, yes, a cult of tradition, like basically drawing on, and tradition isn't necessarily like well-sourced, this kind of like manufactured, and I use this term all the time in prior episodes, some of you have heard it, ethically constitutive narrative that determines our thoughts, um, words, and behaviors. And again, it's always over-romanticized. It it never actually really happened. It's just thought to have happened. Thought to be something that was like awesome in the past or whatever it was. Yeah, what I'm reading has that too. It's just further down in the same section. And something you skipped over, which is right after what you just read. As a consequence, there can be no advancement of learning. Truth Mm. has already spelled... Truth has been already spelled out once and for all, and we can only keep interpreting its obscure message. And then the quote you read continues below that. If you browse in the shelves that in American bookstores are labeled as New Age, you can find there even St. Augustine, who, as far as I know, was not a fascist. But combining St. Augustine and Stonehenge, that is a symbol of UR fascism. Interesting. So the argument is that the truth has already happened. There, we need no new knowledge, new education, new information, science. We'll get to that in a second. We don't need any of those things, that the truth is in the past. We would the, like to conserve that. Interesting. Hmm. Yes. Number two, traditionalism implies the rejection of modernism. Both fascists and Nazis worship technology, while traditionalist thinkers are usually rejected as a negation of the traditional spiritual values. However, even though Nazism was proud of its industrial achievements, its praise of modernism was only the surface of an ideology based upon blood and earth. The rejection of the modern world was disguised as a rebuttal of the capitalistic way of life, but it mainly concerned the rejection of the spirit of 1789 and 1776 of course the enlightenment age of reason age of reason is seen as the beginning of modern depravity in this sense your fascism can be defined as irrationalism so technology uh especially if we're going to pick on the third reich in this case that's modernism but only modernism in terms of the material tools to uphold the traditionalism is exactly. that what, is that what we're getting at yep okay so the modern technology can be used as long as it's used to bring back into being sort of the traditional way of life the nazis are clearly a perfect example sure. of that right not that there ever was a traditional way of life that they were arguing for but that's the whole point it's right. just mythological right number 3 irrationalism also depends on the cult of action for action's sake action being beautiful in itself it must be taken before or without any previous reflection. Thinking is a form of emasculation. We get into gender here, but he goes on that much more in detail later. So we'll just stick with that. Thinking is a form of emasculation. Therefore, culture is suspect insofar as it is defined with critical attitudes. Distrust of the intellectual world has always been a symptom of you are fascism. I could go on and on. I, I, I don't want this episode to take forever. Oh, my God. Yes. Anti-intellectualism intellectualism is a hallmark of fascism and always has been. Not just of fascism, but really any authoritarian type of, of, mm-hmm. of, of ideology and the apparatuses that uh, kind of manufacture that ideology and maintain it and perpetuate it. Anti-intellectualism. I mean, we, we can talk about like Socrates being executed uh, for getting too many of the Athenians to think. Yep. Uh, we can look at really any of the great thinkers of the 20th century that were assassinated for thinking too much. I mean, it's 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 definitely a big part of it. Anti- Why though? Like we have to write, that's where the critique of the fascist regime comes from, right? So it clearly makes sense that they're against intellectualism, but also it threatens their way of tradition, 
right? This mythological past that they have manufactured, that completely gets broken down by the intellectual sectors of society. To be blunt, thinkers question. And that's yep. why I referenced Socrates. That was the yeah, thing. Exactly. He just constantly asked questions and questions to include questioning authority can uh, basically deconstruct it. Deconstruct mm -hmm. all of authority's grounds for being authority. But number three is more than just this distrust of intellectuals. It's also the cult of action for action's sake, meaning that it sort of promotes just acting without actually thinking or reflecting or critiquing the social milieu really in which you exist, sure. right? Number four, no syncret syn now I can't do it. Syncretistic faith. Yeah, that can word is killing us right now. <laughs> Number four, no syncretistic faith can exist without analytical criticism. The critical spirit makes distinctions, and to distinction is a sign of modernism. In a modern culture, the scientific community praises disagreement as a way to improve knowledge. For you are fascism, disagreement is treason. That's the statement right there. I don't even know that I can enhance yeah, that. Essentially, like we talked about. Socrates yeah, said, so disagreement on. is treason. If you disagree with the leadership or the quote unquote state, you're treasonous. Yep. There is no there is no room for discourse in fascism. Besides number five, besides disagreement is a sign of diversity. Your fascism grows up and seeks for consensus by exploiting and exacerbating the natural fear of difference. Yeah, the first appeal yes. of a fascist or prematurely fascist movement yeah. is an appeal against the intruders. Thus, your fascism is racist by definition. Fear, fear of difference. Yep. I mean, that's really what it is. And all fascist regimes, and not just fascist regimes, but it's one of the hallmarks of fascist regimes, is othering. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's yep. built on othering. Othering um, thoughts, and most importantly, people. And, and we saw how that bore out, if we want to use the Nazi example, that's one of the easiest ones to pick on, exactly. othering. Every single fascist yeah. movement and fascist regime has at least one sort of uh, like arch nemesis they've ma that they've manufactured. It's never real that right. they have manufactured to motivate, basically whip all their people up into a fervor and like create this sense of solidarity that's artificial. Yeah, it is this group of people that is in the way of our success. Exactly, our way back to the traditional yeah. whatever right? yeah. it is, whatever exactly. it is. Mm -hmm. Yep. Number six, your fascism derives from individual or social frustration. That is why one of the most typical features of the historical fascism was the appeal to a frustrated middle class, a class suffering from an economic crisis or feeling of political humiliation and frightened by the pressure of lower social groups. In our time, when the old proletarians are becoming petty bourgeois and the lumpen are largely excluded from the political scene, the fascism of tomorrow will find its audience in this new majority, the middle class. Yeah, absolutely. And it ties into like, again, fear of the other. Mm -hmm. Essentially, what we're doing here is yes, things are bad now for reasons X, Y, and Z. But those reasons X, Y, and Z are the fault of this, this exactly. group of people. Uh, again, in, in Nazi Germany, it was obviously uh, the Jewish people, gypsies, communists, whatever, right? Like that. But th mm -hmm. there's always got to be a scapegoat. This is like economic othering, right? For economic reasons. Right. And this is why and it's a appealing to the middle class. Well, yeah, whatever. We I mean, yes, life, life yeah. isn't so good for you, but don't blame the system. Blame this part of the system that we are trying to fix by, getting, people, by yeah. getting back to our traditional way of doing things. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Number seven, to people who feel deprived of a clear social identity, you are fascism says their only privilege is the most common one to be born in the same country. This is the origin of nationalism. 
Besides, the only ones who can provide an identity to the nation are its enemies. And we could go on with that. Uh, Thus, the root of your fascist psychology, there is an obsession with a plot, possibly an international one. The followers must feel besieged. The easiest way to solve the plot is the appeal to xenophobia. And the plot must also come from the inside. Jews are usually the best target because they have the advantage of being at the same time inside and outside. Yeah, well, I mean, you want to talk about a group of people that has been so unjustly, historically just blamed for everything. I mean, there it is right there. And they fit. They seem to fit a whole host of plots. And one of the reasons they fit those plots so well is not just like if we want to pick just solely on the Third Reich. But I mean, we could take this all the way back to like ancient Egypt and, and, and the days of Ramses II and Pharaoh. Like it is this idea that... And religion itself appeals to tradition. And of course, in most of these religious appeals, the Jews also come off as the, or can easily be manufactured as villains. Exactly. Um, yeah, the manufacturing is key for sure, right? Right. And, 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 and yeah, I mean, we can do this all day with like actually picking apart the speeches of, of like uh, Mussolini and Hitler and Franco, and, but we're not going to do that. We'll just keep moving. So you talk a lot about nationalism, right? It's one of your like hugest things. One of the ideologies I find most appalling in world So this history. says yeah. that the origin of nationalism is this fascism, this aspect of trying to cur- manufacture an identity to create like this solidarity out of nothing right it's you are a member right. of this nation and there's always been and to go to this idea plot there is always these outsiders or this this secret evil plan that mm-hmm. we are fighting against whatever it's that threatening is threatening the nation right? yeah, yeah again whatever russian bots yeah <laughs> number eight the followers must feel humiliated by the ostentatious wealth and force of their enemies he says when i was a boy i was taught to think of englishmen as the five meal people they ate more frequently than the poor but sober italians Jews are rich and help each other through a secret web of mutual assistance. However, the followers must be convinced that they can overwhelm the enemies. Thus, by a continuing shift of rhetorical forces, the enemies are at the same time too strong and too weak. Fascist governments are condemned to lose wars, but they are continually incapable of objectively evaluating the force of the enemy. I, that was good. I don't know that I have a whole lot to add. This there. is the whole. Yeah. This is, leads more to sort of like the economic perspective of fascism. That always the enemy has more than you do, right? Well, so you can always be the underdog. Like exactly. fasc- fascist teaching has to teach that to get back to tradition, you are the underdog overcoming whatever historical or in this case people-powered forces that are keeping your life uh, or your happiness um, at bay. Which is interesting because like. You can never get there because if you did, then the fascist the need for the fascist regime would cease to exist. So right? cue, un- so cue ideological wars that are essentially unwinnable, right? Yep. Like you are waging a war. Well, we'll do this in another episode. Waging a war on an idea rather than like something, you know, territory exactly. or something. Yeah. Number nine. For you are fascism. There is no struggle for life, but rather life is lived for struggle. Thus, pacifism is trafficking with the enemy. It is bad because life is permanent warfare. This, however, brings about an Armageddon complex. Since enemies have to be defeated, there must be a final battle mm-hmm. after which the movement will have control of the world. But such a final solution implies a further era of peace, a golden age, which contradicts the principle of permanent war. No fascist leader has ever succeeded in solving this predicament. And they won't. 
No, they can't. They won't. Yeah. yeah. So essentially fascist regimes want constant warfare Mm -hmm. with the promise of peace when the war is over, but the war can never actually be won. It will never be over. And again, it it has those religious overtones as well. If we want to like pick upon like revelations that there will one day be some sort of epic reckoning Mm -hmm. and we will be victorious. But again, it's It's like the chosen people. It's all all so abstract that the odds of that ever happening and and echoes correct. It will never happen. Mm -hmm. It won't ever happen. But it appeals to these frustrated people. Yep, exactly. Number 10. Elitism is a typical aspect of any revolutionary ideology insofar as it is fundamentally aristocratic and aristocratic and... Oh, fundamentally aristocratic and aristocratic and militaristic elitism cruelly implies contempt for the weak. Mm-hmm. Your fascism can only advocate a popular elitism. Every citizen belongs to the best people of the world. The members of the party are the best among the citizens. Every citizen can or ought to become a member of the party, but there cannot be patricians without plebeians. In fact, the leader, knowing that his power was not delegated to him democratically but was conquered by force, also knows that this force is based upon the weakness of the masses. They are so weak as to need and deserve a ruler. Blah, blah, blah. He continues for a couple more sentences, but you get the idea. Mass elitism, right? This idea that if you're a member of the party, you are elite and every citizen of this nation again the nationalism plays a role is elite compared to everyone else in the world right anything to add no number 11 in such a perspective everybody is educated to become a hero in every mythology the hero is an exceptional being but in you are fascist ideology heroism is the norm this cult of heroism is strictly linked with the cult of death it is not by chance that a motto of the Fangalists was Viva la Muerte. In English, it should be translated as Long Live Death. In non-fascist societies, the lay public is told that death is unpleasant but must be faced with dignity. Believers are told that it is, a pain- it is painful to reach a supernatural happiness. By contrast, the UR fascist hero craves heroic death, advertised as the best reward for a heroic life. The UR fascist hero is impatient to die. In his impatience, he more frequently sends other people to death. Uh, cue the Waffen SS, uh, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, that's how you recruit for them. Exactly. Um, taking it back to uh, Nietzsche's like completely bastardized idea by the Third Reich, this idea of Ubermensch. Ubermensch, yeah, yep. absolutely. Exactly. Number 12, since both permanent war and heroism are difficult games to play, the UR fascist transfers his will to power to sexual matters. This is the origin of machismo, which implies both disdain for women and intolerance and condemnation of non-standard sexual habits from chastity to homosexuality. Since even sex is a difficult game to play, the UR fascist hero tends to play with weapons. Doing so becomes an ersatz phallic exercise. Whew, I love that one. That's straight fire. This is the origin of machismo and misogyny in fascist regimes. Both a disdain for women and intolerance, like he says, for non-standard sexual habits. This is why fascist regimes are overwhelmingly patriarchal and almost every fascist regime I can think of absolutely condemned homosexuality. Anything that wasn't just and pure heterosexual. And they're wildly misogynistic. There is yeah. no gender equity. There's no even attempt at gender equity. Um, I mean, you can even see this in the different ways that the Hitler youth, the boys versus the girls were treated and what they were taught. And so, Like, I mean, it's, it's just, yeah, it's it's bad. 13. UR fascism is based upon a selective populism, a qualitative populism, one might say. In a democracy, the citizens have individual rights, but the citizens in their entirety have a political impact only from a quantitative point of view. 
one follows the decisions of the majority. For you are fascism, however, individuals as individuals have no rights, and the people is conceived as a quality, a monolithic entity expressing the common will. Since no large quantity of human beings can have a common will, the leader pretends to be their interpreter. Having lost their power of delegation, the citizens do not act. They are only called on to play the role of the people. Thus, the people is only a theatrical fiction. And he has a couple more sentences there. So the idea that in a democracy, right, it's this quantitative game where all of the people vote or whatever or or, uh, elect delegates Mm -hmm. and like numerically in theory, right, the majority rules. Under fascism, it's more of a qualitative game where it's not the majority rules. It's that the people as this sort of abstract mass exist and the fascist leader represents them. He's not a delegate. Like he says, he doesn't earn their leadership through in the polls or anything. He just assumes it uh, as a result of his actions by force. First citizen of the state, so to speak. And it is. It's theatrics. It's spectacle. If we want to pick on some concepts we've talked about in prior podcasts. Um, And it is. It's this idea that this this populism, It's. I mean, it's manufactured. And even this populism, and it comes back to one of the earlier tenets here, disagreement with the populism, the popular narrative is treasonous. So that in and of itself courses those people to want to follow, in this case, their hallmark leader knowing full well that it might be challenging their innate morals or ethics, they don't care. That populism is mm-hmm. enough to kind of sweep them up into doing things yeah. that go against not only like like their morals or ethics, but their own greater interest. Yeah. Right? It's like the ultimate peer pressure, except it's not actually your peers that are pressuring you. It's this abstract idea of the people, right? And the now, I mean, it reminds me of the now world-famous interviews with the, the citizens of Dachau pretending they didn't know what the smoke was coming. Exactly. Like, I mean... You Seriously? knew. Yeah, you knew. Exactly. That cognitive dissonance was through the populism. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Last one, number 14. You are fascism speaks newspeak. Newspeak was invented by Orwell in 1984, which if you haven't read it, absolutely go read 1984, right. uh, as the official language of INSOC, English Socialism. But elements of UR fascism are common to different forms of dictatorship. All the Nazi or fascist school books made use of an impoverished vocabulary, an elementary syntax, in order to limit the instruments for complex and critical reasoning. Yep. But we must be ready to identify other kinds of newspeak, even if they take apparently innocent forms of a popular talk show. Newspeak is this the idea that this this language that is created that is highly controlled and manufactured by the government to prevent any kind of critique or dissension. That like literally those words don't even exist in the language, which is very interesting. And so the fascist regime uses this way of talking to prevent any kind of critique on anything that they're saying, their beliefs, the their histories, and so on. So it's just purely impossible to have any kind of dissension by anyone. Uh, it's interesting. It's mass dumbing down of the population and, and, and removing any type of yeah, nuanced discourse. Mm-hmm. That's all that's really doing. Yeah. yeah. All right. That's the 14 characteristics. Anything uh, he continues and has uh, more stuff like in the article, but that's enough for us. Any additional thoughts on these 14? We blew through them really quickly. No, I mean, it'll be interesting if we ever decide we want to kind of like apply these to like the modern day. But I mean, yeah. Well, spoiler alert, we're going to apply them to oh, the really? modern day. So. Uh, if you want to continue, you can click on the episode you should be seeing now. We are going to apply these 14 characteristics to the modern day, uh, regime, if you want the administration of the United States. So we'll see you next time. Later.